Hi, I'm Tiki Barber, co-founder of Thusio. Thanks for listening to the Thusio Live and Unfiltered podcast. This episode features Teddy Greenstein's interview with PGA legend Andy North. Andy describes what it was like to persevere, winning multiple championships with multiple injuries, his emotions watching Tiger Woods win his latest Masters, and details how he got a journalist transferred off of the golf beat. Enjoy the interview. Let's go back to 79 and 85. So you won at what, Cherry Hills and Oakland Hills? Uh, Cherry Hills and Oakland Hills. Oakland Hills. Um, what are your some of these people weren't even born back then? Seriously, <laughs> um, <laughs> don't be a smart ass. Okay, there you go. Those were traditional U.S. Open yeah. venues, and how, how did you do it? What was the key? Cherry Hills was was an interesting golf course in that it was at a mile high, so the ball went a long ways. Uh, it played much shorter than the seven thousand or whatever yardage it was at the time, and it was very very firm. So it was hard to put the ball in the fairway. I only hit four drivers each day. Uh, hit a lot of one irons, two irons, just to keep the ball in the fairway. I'd, I'd finished second my start before that, so I was playing well. I'd won in Westchester the fall before, so I kind of felt like, you know, this is kind of my next step. There's no reason I can't win here. Uh, I'd played Cherry Hills a couple of amateur tournaments. I really liked the golf course. Uh, staying with friends, it was just one of those weeks that everything kind of worked really well, and I played well all week long. Uh, played with, had the lead. I was a shot out of the lead after Thursday. Had the lead Friday night. Had the lead, and I played with Nicholas on Saturday, which was pretty cool. What was it like? Uh, it was fine. I mean, I was I was playing well. I'd played with him enough before that that I, you know, it no wasn't that big a deal at yeah. that point. I mean. You know, it was Jack Nicholas, but, um, you know, I felt like I was doing okay, and I played well, and uh, I ended up having the lead Saturday night and then played with Gary Player on Sunday. And each of those guys won a major that year, so, you know, they were still doing their thing quite well. I played really, really well Sunday, hit the ball great. Um, I got to the 13th hole, had about a, had a three- or four-shot lead at the time, had about a 15-footer. And lining this putt up, I always talk to my caddy this way that, you know, you're all semi-cocky about, hey, we make this putt, this thing's over, you know, that kind of talk. And I ended up making this putt and never hit another shot the rest of the way. Oh. It was like you were completely unplugged. That that edge was completely gone. Hmm. And I, I mean, I, I couldn't have won if we'd have played two more holes. It was just how do we get in? leaking oil it was you know leading the indy 500 and your engine blows and you're just coasting and please lord let me make it and that's that's kind of how the last four or five holes went uh i ended up having a which should have been it should have been a fun last three or four holes and i and i let it get away and i ended up having to make about a four or five footer in the last hole to win by one uh, so that was but that was kind of you know, where I thought my career was going. I, at that point in time, I figured, well, you know, I'll win five or six of these things before I'm done. Um, majors or tournaments? Majors. Whoa. Yeah, majors. Um, it just felt right. I mean, I, I felt like majors were so much easier to win than normal events because two-thirds or three-quarters of the guys were completely psyched out before they even started. Um, 
you know, the course is too hard. It was fun to be in the locker room. A guy is coming in bitching about, you know, this court and fairways are too narrow. The greens are too hard. The greens are too fast. And you'd sit there, oh, yeah, they're terrible. Just stirring it up as much as you possibly could. Um, but that was good. Uh, 85 was completely different. Um, I, after I won in 78, my goal from the time I was a 13 years old, putting on the putting greens, waiting for your ride to come and pick you up at dark. You know, this four-footers to win the U.S. Open to beat Jack Nicklaus. This four-footers to win the U.S. Open to beat Gary Player. This four-footers to beat Arnold. And that's, you know, what all kids did. And to actually be able to have a four-footer to beat those guys was pretty cool. Um, I, and after that, I, I was a little bit like Tiger is right now, that you weren't terribly focused. You still put the work in, but there was something missing. Um, and I, I played okay in 79, 80, 81, had some seconds and some good finishes and, you know, decent on the money list, not great. And then I started to have some issues. I had elbow surgery. I had a couple of knee surgeries. I broke a hand, I, you know, where I had a bunch of seasons that you're just doing rehab. You know, you're trying to figure out where you are and what you're doing versus actually competing. And during that period of time, there was a lot of, stuff written that wasn't very kind um, looking at me I, no I, I was too young you, you were too young it wasn't me it was some of your predecessors yeah. a guy named john huser if anybody remembers he that wrote name. for the tribune he ended up covering yes. the outdoors well that's some <laughs> somebody had something to do with him getting transferred you got him kicked the off the golf beat what did that's he write exactly right what did he write do you remember i threatened to kill him actually <laughs> i need more of this uh, where it was it was after it was after the 78 Open, and he wrote some horrible story about if this had been a car race, it had been black flagged, and this guy's terrible. He doesn't deserve to be the U.S. Open champion. And one thing led to another, and we called some sponsors, and they made some phone calls, and he didn't do golf anymore after that. <laughs> you know, it's fun to get even. <laughs> but anyway, there's, I mean, I didn't play, I, mean, I went through a stretch, I didn't play very well. Um, I dealt with it probably better than my wife did, you know, when you don't have any control over what's going on and somebody's writing bad stuff about the guy you love. That's not real easy. And yeah. your kids are reading this stuff and you know, it was hard. Uh, but then I had, I had some more surgeries and I went through the 84 season rehabbing from a couple of surgeries and really worked hard physically and really kind of got motivated to, I'm going to win another one of these or I'm going to win another major. I'm going to, you know, so you got some focus back. Uh, which was really good, and I and I played pretty well through most of the '85 season. I had a top ten in Hawaii in Hawaii early in the year that really kind of, you know, you've done all this work in the fall and the winter, and hey, this actually is is working. I'm going to be okay. Uh, and I played some good golf that year. Ended up, I missed the cut the week before at Westchester, which was one of my favorite tournaments. Uh, it was a golf course that was all set up exactly like the Open, narrow fairways, really deep rough. Uh, I love playing there. I missed the cut and stayed with some friends. And we were going to go up to their lake place on Saturday. And about 4 o'clock on Saturday, I said, nope, I'm not going. I'm getting on an airplane. So I flew out to Oak. I went to Denver that night. I uh, went out Sunday morning and started hitting some balls. And after about five balls, it kind of all fell into place. And, and I really felt good about it. I had a great week of preparation. Uh, I didn't play a lot of 18-hole practice rounds. I played a bunch of nine holes early in the morning, went back, went to a movie, relaxed, 
maybe came back and played nine more late at night where I spent a lot of time chipping and putting and doing the stuff around the greens that made a difference at an open, not just wasting five or six hours out there in the middle of the day playing for five bucks with some guys. And I, I played great. I played absolutely great Thursday, played great Friday. I shot 70. First day, shot 65. The second day, which at Oakland Hills is a big deal. Um, shot 70 on Saturday in a horrible day. Just an absolute horrible day. It was rainy. It was about 50 degrees. T.C. Chin shot 69 that day. I shot 70. And we basically separated ourselves from everybody else. We were three, four, five ahead of the most of the other guys chasing. So it, it basically is between us. And that, that Saturday night, some guy in the back row of the media center actually stood up and said, uh, you know, since 78 was a fluke, do you think you've got any chance to win tomorrow? I had to be restrained. I was going, I was going over the desk to go, and the guys grabbed me. That's just, Are you serious? Yeah, absolutely, wow. absolutely. Uh, so Sunday went out there, and it was one of those days that players talk about where you had absolutely nothing. I couldn't lay the club on it. I literally could lay, not lay the club on it. And you're thinking like, how in the hell am I going to get through this? And I, I stumbled around early on. I made some bogeys. Uh, T.C. Chin screwed up. He had the four-shot lead. He had the famous double hit, made an eight on this hole, got me back tied. I then had the lead, then I made three bogeys in a row. So I'm walking off the 11th hole, and I'm one behind a couple of different guys. I had a poor drive on uh, 12, which is a par five, in a fairway bunker. But it was a pretty simple fairway. It was one of those just long, low ones like you might see in Florida. There wasn't like big lips or anything. Going back to the Masters, I think that's probably one of the greatest scenes I've ever seen in golf. We were there uh, with ESPN. And the scene from the time he walked off the 18th green until he got into the scores uh, building, it was about a 250-yard walk. I've never seen anything like that at a golf tournament. The people are in line yelling and screaming. You don't, first of all, you don't run at Augusta. You don't yell at Augusta. You don't have your phones at Augusta. And on that line, all that stuff was happening. It was completely out of control. And then if, if any of you have been to, a, been to the tournament, they've got an unbelievable practice facility. At the back left-hand corner of this practice facility, they built studios for 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 golf channel espn uh bbc and then for sky and it's a great spot so we can have while we're doing some stuff on air you can have shots of guys hitting balls in the range that kind of stuff so that you've got some stuff to talk about and all the all the patrons come in and out on a path that's about maybe 30 or 40 feet wide and it was complete gridlock at about because they they played earlier on this Sunday they all got they got done at about four o'clock and everybody is leaving normally at, at the Masters people come in in the morning and leave and somebody else uses the ticket and they come back later and then maybe it gets used even a third time now all these people had to leave at the same time it's absolutely gridlock and Van Pelt and I are sitting out there and usually it's Scotty you know this and yelling and you know people being idiots uh, but just all of a sudden they'd start this tiger chant tiger tiger t i mean it was really cool and and you at a you know that's the kind of stuff you see at a football game or a soccer match you don't see it at augusta national but that was really amazing and then i mean the fact that what had happened to tiger the 12 months prior to winning there 
you know, coming back from not playing, not even knowing he was ever going to play again, playing well, compete, contending, getting back to where he thinks that he can actually compete against these guys, then winning in Atlanta at the end of the year. And then six starts later, he wins the Masters. I, I talked to him a couple weeks after that, and I said, how are you doing? You know, what, you know how's, it, how's this whole thing? He said, this is so cool. I haven't done one thing. I've just been laying around thinking about how cool this is. <laughs> And, you know, you can understand that. You know, you've closed a huge deal after you never thought you'd close another one or you did something really special that you never thought you'd, you'd have a chance to do it again. And uh, for him to do that, and uh, the golf world was out of control, but I think it's really been hard for him to focus on trying to get ready to play. Um, he, he probably shouldn't have gone to the PGA. He wasn't ready at all there. He hadn't practiced at all, but he felt like he had to. He is reasonably prepared for the for the U.S. Open, and then didn't do much before he went. He he went on a two-week vacation to Thailand with his kids and his mom, and didn't touch a golf club for two weeks. And this is ten days before the Open Championship, and then you're you're practicing at home trying to get ready. It's 95 degrees. You're hitting balls in t-shirts and shorts, and then you get off the plane over there, and it's 55 degrees. And if for a guy that's body doesn't work really well, that's not a good good idea and you said like and i've read about this with him he really doesn't sleep much right no no um he's he's had troubles for years and you know a lot of the the drug stuff that you know was written about a couple of years ago when he got arrested in the middle of the night um he he doesn't sleep well and uh, i know he's taken ambient a lot over the years just to try to sleep i mean he's a three or four hour a guy kind of guy and to have him out at midnight, uh, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if he took some. And you're laying in bed, you can't get to sleep. And he's a guy that gets in his car and drives around in the middle of the night. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes maybe he's going someplace, maybe not. Um, you know, who knows what happened that night. But he was a mess when they, they finally got him. I watch Netflix to fall asleep. That's my, that's my current plan. Um, so I watch way, golf. Watch golf, exactly. <laughs> the year that... Hale won the open there. I thought it was the most difficult golf course I'd ever seen Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. It was hard as a rock. The fairways were about 20, you know, how the U.S. Open used to be with like 25-yard wide fairways. And they were firm enough you couldn't keep the ball in the fairway. And I truly thought that, you know, sitting back at the hotel that Wednesday night, that if I could figure out a way to shoot 288, which was four over par, I had a really good chance to win. I mean, that was my game plan. And it rained like three inches that Wednesday night. And I had a late tea time on Thursday and got out there and there were 60 guys under par. You know, sevens, five, six, sevens under. So, you know, out the window goes how you want to try to attack the golf course. But I thought Medina, when it was firm and fast, was as difficult as it could possibly be. When we had the Ryder Cup here in 12, there wasn't any rough at all. Like last year, uh, they had at over in Paris, they had the fairways about 25 yards wide with deep rough, and our guys couldn't couldn't play. They couldn't figure it out. So, and I I hit a five iron out to lay up, and everything kind of felt in sync again. Hit a really good nine iron second shot about eight feet, missed the putt. Then the next hole's a par three, really difficult hole location, big double level up on the top level. I hit a five iron about 12 feet made that one for birdie, and basically from that point on hit really good shots. So 
you know, when people talk about how you can change, you know, how it can, around can change. I mean, I had nothing. I mean, I was a mess. I made five bogeys. I believe I made five bogeys the first 11 holes on Sunday, and I'd made two the first 54 holes. So going from hitting it beautifully to like a six handicap, you know, and Sunday the open is not really a good feeling. But, uh, yeah, it, it all worked out at the end. But I hit some good shots coming down the stretch. Uh, but it was a completely different feeling. I mean, the first open was, you know, you're moving the right direction. This is just your, your, the way your profession's going. And, and the second one was really nice to walk in the media center that night and tell some people to stick it up there, whatever. So uh, that was very enjoyable, which probably got me in some more trouble. But, you know, what the hell. Little rascal. Yeah. Um, I was really lucky. I had a guy that taught me that was here in the Chicago area at Barrington Hills. He taught me for 50 years. And I could be playing terrible. And I'd stop by there. Um, and it was never some major thing. It was the ball's out of position by a half an inch. Or, you know, your grip's a little bit too strong. I mean, you've hit so many golf balls that. Usually it's not something major, some little teeny thing, or your shoulders are a little bit open. You know, whatever I did, you know, maybe you're, you know, during the course of this process of screwing up every hole, you, know, you start trying to change some things, and maybe I, I hit on something that worked. And it was just from that point on, it was pretty simple. Uh, from having no chance to win the tournament, all of a sudden, hey, I can do this. this. These guys are in trouble. I'm back to tied with them. They aren't going to beat me, which was, you know, which was a nice feeling. So do you relate to Brooks Kepka a little bit as a guy who peaks at majors? <laughs> well, you know, Brooks is, Brooks is an amazing player. Uh, great combination of strength, uh, finesse. I think the one thing that Brooks has done really well is that he's figured out something that works for him. There's a million different ways to do this, and he's figured out something that works for him. Um, and and for him, it's major championships that all that may, you know. We all tried to gear our schedules to be ready at majors. Sometimes you are, and sometimes you aren't. Uh, but Brooks has figured out a way to do it. Um, he puts better in majors than he does regular terms. He drives the ball straighter. If you look at his, his numbers, he's just he's able to take himself to a higher level, and that's really hard to do. And that's what the great players have been able to do. You watch Nicholas. You look at Nicholas's record. He won a lot of tournaments the week before, the week after a major, just because maybe he got ready a little early or maybe it didn't happen until the next week. Uh, but he won a lot of events around majors that guys try to be ready to play those events. And, you know, some guys want to just play well all the time. Other guys, it's about I'm using the regular events to try to prepare myself so I'm playing my best at major championships, and he does that really well. So Brooks is at one end of the spectrum on slow play, and on the other end of the spectrum is J.B. Holmes and Bryson DeChambeau. <laughs> Where do you fall into that? Were you a fast I, player, I'm slow a, player? I was, I'm in Brooks's camp. I mean, good God, how long does it take you to stand over it to screw up, you know? And the worst part is, is as slow as it's gotten, at our level, and some of it is not under our control, that you've got galleries that have to cross fairways, that they people hold them at the wrong times, or you're playing great big golf courses to where it's a 300-yard walk to the next tee, that kind of stuff. That takes time, uh, which, but 
I don't care. Just be ready. Uh, I was a faster player. Um, we all know who the slow players are. We've been fighting this battle for 40 years. Um, I stood up in a players meeting shoot 35 years ago and said listen this is how we we all know who the 12 or 14 guys are you get them together you let them play together you let them play at 230 every single day and let them take as long as they want who cares <laughs> you know by the end of the summer they're going to get sick and tired of crappy greens and yeah. you know they'll play faster it's all going to work put the fast guys out first and let's just go play um a lot of guys didn't think that was such a great idea but you know the problem. Well, Jack is, might have been in the, in the Jack last was, hour. Jack was, he was slow, but you know he did. He was slow and didn't hit it very many times. You know, it, right. if you're uh, making those eight foot putts, yeah. it's okay if you take a yeah, minute. Yeah, right? I mean that's one thing. But when, and I'm not pointing fingers at anybody in this room, but when you you have a 35 second pre shot routine, you take seven practice swings, you throw grass up in the air, you walk off the yardage to be exactly right, and then you top it 40 yards. You know, seriously, you know, grab a club and hit it. It doesn't matter what club, it doesn't matter what yardage, hit it, and let's just move on and have some fun playing. For God's sakes, amen. If you're playing with your buddies and you decide you're going to tee the ball up with a tee in the middle of the fairway, ever, I don't care. I want you to go out there and have some fun playing. I mean, that's the, that's the whole idea of this stupid game is that you're supposed to go out and enjoy it. You have some friends you love playing with. You get to go some beautiful places and play. You can use it as something in your life for 70, 80 years. I mean, it's a beautiful game that way. But I don't care what you do at your club. I don't care what you do when you're out by yourself. I mean, for the USGA to come out and say, well, if you play by yourself, that score doesn't count for your handicap. Seriously? I mean, really. They've just spent $50 million getting a world handicap system that they think is going to revolutionize golf. $50 million bucks, you could have bought 25 golf courses around the country and opened them up for kids for free, and you'd have really done something for golf. They think this is great, so now a guy in Europe has it the same handicap as a guy in Chicago. Well, if we know the guys in Ireland don't have real handicaps, you're not going to play them for any money. Who cares? I mean, seriously, if the guy's an 8 or a 10, does anybody really care? I mean, really. So let's have a very simplified set of rules for, the guy who want, for people who want to play golf with an emphasis on etiquette, pace of play, that kind of stuff. Hit when you're ready. If somebody you're playing with is over fiddling around the leaves looking for his ball, who cares? Just hit it and he'll catch up eventually. And then have a set of real tournament rules. That these are the way, this is, if you want to play tournament golf, these now are the rules you have to play under. That would have been much simpler than come, I mean, the, the first six or eight tournaments of the year, we had somebody disqualified every single week for dropping the ball here instead of at his knees, which looks stupid to begin with. Just put it on the ground, for God's sakes, you know. But let's have some tournament rules, and then if you want to roll your ball over in the fairway and you want to pick up every six-footer, who cares? You know, you're just, it's about having a good time, for God's sakes. Did you or do you still uh, play for money? Do you like doing that practice rounds with friends? How do you feel about playing for cash? I don't play cash? golf, really. You don't now? No. Um, I know people laugh at that. I, I play in the Legends with Tom Watson, who is a great buddy. Uh, it's the one tournament that I 
I've played the last five or six years. I haven't played any other tournaments. Um, and other than that, I'll, I'll play a little bit before that so I don't completely embarrass myself so he gets really mad at me. Um, and then I'll play corporate golf. I'll play, I, I played Sunday nine holes with my son-in-law and daughter and granddaughter. My granddaughter and I lost one up to my daughter and her husband. Uh, scramble, you know, I, I let her down, my eight-year-old. Um, but I, I don't play, I play still some corporate golf and that sort of stuff, but I don't, I don't call up the guys, no, let's go play some. I don't when do you did much. play, did you, did you like playing for cash? No, I didn't. I didn't. Um, if it was at a golf tournament, I felt like it was more important to try to figure out how to play well Thursday through Sunday than win 50 bucks on Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, I didn't have enough energy to grind my guts out for four days, barely, let alone... Th- because you know, I don't care if it's for five bucks or one buck or five thousand. You're still going to go out there and play hard, and I just—at least I did. Yep. And I didn't—I didn't like winning twenty bucks from a friend, and I didn't like losing twenty bucks. You know, so I didn't play for money very much. Interesting. I mean, you played for every every other time you played. There you go. We've got a great group of young guys right now. I mean, super guys: uh, Jordan Spieth and Justin Thomas and Ricky. Uh, are terrific guys and there's a bunch of really good young guys coming on after them and they get it and they do the right things and they're great with people they're good on tv they do all the right things but no one cares if tiger's not playing i mean that's sad to say but everybody talks about phil this and phil that you go out there this week and watch there won't be 50 people following phil there'll be 20,000 following tiger this whole FedEx Cup stuff at the end of the year is great for the guys winning it and making a whole bunch of money. But at the same time, what does that do? What did that FedEx do for the Western Open? That wasn't a very good deal. Right. Western Open, one of the great events we had for 100 years and basically disappeared because there weren't enough spots for it, which is really sad. Um, there's other tournaments that have basically gone away because they were just nice community events that people love to play. Milwaukee, a perfect example of that. It's a wonderful tournament that went on for 40 or 50 years and all of a sudden it's gone because you're not going to play for enough money. So, I mean, there's, there's issues and problems, but I think overall this year has been a weird year because you've got now a major championship every month, TPC in March, then the Masters, the PGA, the Open, the Open Championship through and then the FedEx stuff starts in in August so it's a pretty heavy schedule for these guys in a short period of time they really don't know what how to handle it yet this was almost an experiment this year that Tiger skipped his favorite tournament of all at Bay Hill because it didn't fit in the schedule properly for him to get ready for Augusta so there's those kind of things that players are going to have to figure out they're going to have to go to some tournaments that they've never played before uh, which, you know, you get in a habit, you like certain golf courses, it fits the schedule properly. Now that's all been thrown out the window. So I think it'll take them a year or two to kind of figure it out. But I think for television, it's great. I think if, if you looked at the ratings for the FedEx events in September, once football season starts, no one cares. I mean, seriously. It's college football, it's pro football. No one cares about the golf unless Tiger's playing. Generic locker room story. You know, I don't. Please. I don't think. You know that the early years, 
they always had a, a tub of beer in the locker room, and it was always fun. You'd, as you were playing an afternoon round, or if you were playing decent on Sunday, you'd be going off later, and guys would be coming early. And usually it wasn't Sunday that sat around because they were getting out of town. But a Friday, or you missed the cut on a Friday or a Saturday, and the guys would sit in there and maybe drink a few too many beers, and, st and the, st the stories would just be fantastic. Um, the practical jokes that went on in the locker room probably were more fun than stories. You know, you'd super, super glue some guy's locker shut so he couldn't get in it. Now you've got your, all your shoes are in the locker room, the locker. You can't get in. You've got an hour before you have to play, and you're, you're breaking the door off the locker. Uh, Gary McCord, there, there was a guy, George Burns, that was a really good player for a bunch of years, but he was a complete ass most of the time. And he was a good friend, but he was an ass most of the time. And guys got tired of it, so McCord super glued his shoe trees in his in his shoes a couple of times, that kind of stuff. That was always fun. Uh, but the, the great stories back in the early days were usually driving stories. In the 70s, early 80s, almost all of us drove everywhere. Uh, only a few guys flew, and only Arnold and Jack flew privately. So it was all about, you know, I was driving 100 miles an hour, and this guy pulled me over. I got, we had a tournament at, toward the end of the season in Pinehurst, and I missed the cut two years in a row. We were living in Florida at this time, so it was right at the end of the season. You're excited about getting home for some time off. And I got pulled over by the same cop in the same place two years in a row. <laughs> That's not terribly smart. but And they're all like, oh, man, what's going on? You're about the fifth or sixth guy I've got today that's really driving fast, and he's got golf clubs in the trunk. and So, you know, usually it's the driving stories that are a lot of fun. Final I question. Next year... We will be at Whistling Straits for the Ryder Cup, yeah. and obviously you are from the state of Wisconsin. Uh, what are your thoughts on Whistling and, and the Ryder Cup being there? Well, first of all, I think the fact that Whistling is now hosted, is it three PGAs or is it two PGAs? Maybe two PGAs, a couple women's Opens, a senior U.S. Open, and now the Ryder Cup is pretty cool. Um, you know, we didn't, growing up as a kid, I never thought you'd have a major championship in the state of Wisconsin. The fact that we've had quite a few in the last 20 years is amazing. I think that Whistling Straits is going to be a golf course that is going to be really fun for a Ryder Cup. Uh, it's going to be hard for the fans. It's a hard golf course to get around. If any of you have been there, walking outside the ropes is not fun at all. Um, the first year we had a PGA there, I bet some friends that there'd be multiple broken legs and ankles, and they laughed at me. Well, that, that, was, that bet was won by Wednesday afternoon. Um, I, think it's, you know, I think it'll show great on TV. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun with Steve Stricker being the captain, Wisconsin guy. Um, he's talked about having Jerry Kelly and myself being involved somehow. Uh, you know, just being around all week, just being Wisconsin guys to try to help out a little bit. Uh, not in any true official, but, you know, some semi-official stuff. Uh, it's going to be fun. I mean, it, it's the one thing that I don't like about what's going on. I mean, I was lucky enough to play a Ryder Cup. I was lucky enough to be an assistant captain for Watson in 14. Uh, it's a great honor. It's, it's, it's one of the great... Uh, things that have happened to me and anybody who's ever been involved in the Ryder Cup. 
the thing that I think is really sad is that uh, so many of the sites that we've picked have not been great for us. I mean, this is supposed to be a home court advantage, and yet the last five or six Ryder Cups have been at Oak Hill, they've been at Medina, they've been at Oakland Hills, they've been in Minneapolis, now they're whistling straight. So your third week in September, it's cool. Our guys have just come out of playing Atlanta, this whole run of warm, I mean, like last year was a perfect example. Example, Tiger wins in Atlanta. It's 95 degrees every day. They leave that, that night to fly to Paris, and they get off the airplane, and it's 50 degrees. Now, for a guy with a bag back that's completely worn out, he had no chance to play well there. I mean, he had no chance. And, and probably, if the captain was doing his duty, he probably shouldn't have played him four times. You know, should have maybe only played him a couple of times. Or giving him the first day off completely. Uh, but, you know, how are you going to sit Tiger? He just won a tournament. Are you kidding me? And he's going to kill you if you sit him. I mean, so, I mean, there's all that. Uh, but I think, why aren't we playing our home matches in September in Florida or Georgia or Texas or Southern California? Someplace where it's warm, where it's to our advantage, instead of playing right into the Euro's hands. This is what they play every day at home. So I, I'm disappointed with that part of it, but I'm you know, obviously very excited that it's coming to Whistling Straits. It's going to be a, a complete blast. It'll be uh, a week that hopefully our guys can play well. So much is put on the captain. Oh, he was a great captain because they won, or he was a bad captain because they lost. No. You know, you got 12 guys. If they play well and you're an absolute idiot as a captain, you're going to win. If they play poorly, you're going to get beat. And, and it's... In playing poorly is shooting 72s. I mean, in that format, you got to play your butt off. And uh, you know, we've you look over the years and you break down matches. And we went back and looked at a bunch of the years in 14 when we were when I was assistant. And it's amazing how the Ryder Cup comes down to one or two or three matches where a guy makes a 50 footer or 40 footer or chips in or pulls out some crazy shot. Uh, perfect example, uh, there was a match, it was on Thursday or Friday over there that Jimmy Walker and Ricky were playing Rory and Sergio. And our guys were one up with two holes to play, and the 17th hole is a par three, and they, uh, our guys put it in the bunker, it was alternate shot, our guys put it in the bunker, easy bunker shot, they're going to make par. Sergio hit in the very front of the green. Um, Rory had about a 50-footer up over this hill. Jimmy Walker hits a nice bunker shot about three feet. They're going to make our guys are going to make par. So now if he three putts, we win the match. He hits this thing 100 miles an hour, hits the back of the cup, pops up about six inches, goes in. So now the match is tied going the last hole. Rory's hitting the last hole. He hits a tee shot that goes 50 yards offline to the right, hits some trees, rattles around, comes down in an area where they took out a big tree. The rough, the rough's six or eight inches deep everywhere over there. It comes down in a newly sodded area. Ball sitting up like on a practice mat. Sergio hits it on the green. They make four. Our guys make five. We lose the match. You know, that's not only just that match, but it's the fact that it was a point you were going to win. 
I mean, it's a two-point swing. It's not a one-point swing. And you look down, and all oh, you got beat by five points. Well, that happens three times. That's the match. And that's, that's what's so interesting about it. That's what makes it so much fun. And that's what drives every captain absolutely out of their mind. I'm looking forward to that. Hope to see you, Adam Medina. Hope to see Andy North, thank you so much. Man. Thanks for coming appreciate tonight. It. Really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to the Thuzio Live and Unfiltered podcast with our guest, Andy North. Be sure to subscribe to Thuzio Live and Unfiltered wherever you listen to podcasts. And make sure you follow us on social media at Thuzio.